We're in Romans chapter 8 um, today, and before we get into that, a, a couple of things. First of all, this is our last Sunday in Romans. We're wrapping up our Romans series this Sunday, and uh, unfortunately, I love the book of Romans, and I'm, I'm sad that we're done, but we said we were going after the first eight chapters. It's kind of like two different books, for one through eight, and then the rest of it are kind of like two different books, and we just decided to tackle the first eight this time around. Um, and uh, Paul's been on a journey for the first eight chapters. And you may remember that the letter of Romans, we talked about how incredibly different the letter of Romans is compared to the rest of the epistles, the rest of the letters. The rest of the letters all look like letters. This one doesn't really look like a letter. It looks more like a theological term paper, you know, or, or something of that nature. Anybody remember, can you dig back eight weeks ago and anybody pull to mind, pull to memory why this one's different? What's Paul actually trying to accomplish? Anybody remember? It's an introductory letter. He hasn't met the Romans yet. He's never met these guys. All the other letters, he's writing to people who he's already met. This one, he hasn't met them. And what's his objective in establishing the relationship with him? Anybody remember? A little trickier. He wants to go to them and he wants to establish a partnership with them by which he now is going to go from there to Spain. He wants that to be the mission hub for what he's going to do from there on out. He wants to reach to the farthest ends of the earth, which at that point is Spain. And so he wants to get all the way over to Spain, but he wants to form this partnership with Rome. And so this is his resume. This is his introduction. This is him saying like, all right, I want to, I want to let you know this is like theologically what I believe. This is what I'm trying to accomplish. This is the mission. This is where we're headed. And that's the whole point of Romans, basically. And he frames the gospel for them, his perspective of the gospel. But he frames it. You know how we said sometimes it gets framed in terms of heaven and hell, the gospel? There's all sorts of ways to frame the gospel because it transforms everything. And in this case, he sets the gospel up in terms of the Jews and the Gentiles. And he says there's this relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles that's long been a fractured relationship, but he's going to talk about how that can synergistically come together and how God unifies and has purpose for the Jews and the Gentiles together, which establishes again for him the idea of here he is a Jew taking a religion that was birthed out of Judaism, a relationship with Jesus, but he's partnering with these guys who are the Gentiles, the definitional Gentiles of the time, the center of civilization, and he's going to go and form a partnership with them by which he's going to share the gospel, and that's what he's trying to accomplish. So then he goes and he begins to speak about his perspective of what happened to our world, how it's fallen apart, and what, all the, what sin did and how it corrupted it, and what's happened to us because of the sin, and then he talks about the struggle with sin and the struggle to find redemption, the struggle to change, until eventually it gets to this point of culmination, like the big angst of chapter 7, and Josh Bitework and I didn't feel like doing chapter 7, so we asked Josh Hostetter to do it last week, because, um, you know, no, it was great that he, um, he, it's the week that Josh has landed on, and we were just laughing, because chapter 7, there's just so much angst in this passage, just a tough passage, I do all the things I don't want to do, I don't do the things that I want to do, oh, what a wretched man I am, who will save me from this body of sin? And that's, the, that's that passage. And it gets to the end of this diatribe with Paul talking about what's happened to humanity and why things are so bad. And his whole thing is it separated the Jews and the Gentiles so violently, so horribly, this disdain and hatred for one another. 
And what he's saying is, is that it gets transformed by the gospel. And in order for us to understand what he's really talking about, he, we, we have to see that he's trying to share with us why the hatred is there. What is it within us that keeps us from being free enough to actually love other people and sustain relationships the way they're supposed to be sustained? At the end of the day, what is it that keeps us from relating the way we should to each other? What is it? Sin. More specifically, the sin that really makes relationships fall apart is selfishness. It's still all about me. And so when my life is all about me and your life is all about you, inevitably we're going to have conflict because there's going to be times that what you think is best for you and what I think is best for me, they don't jive. They don't fit. It's not like a puzzle piece. It doesn't work. And unless I get to a place where life is about something more than just me, then the relationships don't work. But the Jews identified themselves as the Jews, and the Gentiles identified themselves as the big, strong people who were running the world, and they had this conflict about how they identified themselves. And when those things came into conflict, the relationships shattered. But what Paul says is, is there's hope for something better. There's hope for something bigger. We have to know the truth about ourselves in order to get to a different place. And the truth that he, this whole first part of the book leads up to is the culmination of Romans chapter 8. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's awesome. I had a bunch of people tell me they were going to be away on vacation this week, and I'm like, you guys are missing out. This is my favorite chapter. It's going to be awesome. And I felt so bad, so, you know, they're just going to have to listen to it online or whatever. But this is a chapter where it's worth reading all the time. You just go back and read. Went with the men's group. You remember, guys, those of you who were in the men's group last year, I was like, just read this chapter over and over and over again because it changes your life. The truths in this passage will change your life. So we're going to read chapter 8. But before we do, one other thing is that, uh, uh, you know, each week we have, I have you guys stand up and read. And you've been standing for a bunch of songs and then you sit down for a few minutes, and then I have you stand up again while I read a whole passage of Scripture, a whole chunk, a whole chapter of Scripture. There's a couple different reasons for that. One is, is because people need to learn to read the Scripture. It's a, it's a lost art. Um, and secondly, because if we can read a chapter on Sunday morning before the message, then you can certainly read a chapter each morning before you go to work, right? And so we build the discipline in of, of reading the passage and saying, this is really, we're a people of the book. This isn't my opinions about anything. We believe in the scriptures, and we believe it's really important. But I know that it's always a little bit like, all right, time to stand up and read this whole chapter of scripture again. Well, George Ann had a little experience this, this week um, as she was thinking that through, and I asked her to come share her experience with you. Oh, we need a mic. What's that? Okay, right here. We have a guy in our neighborhood who walks around and sings hymns at the top of his lungs. And I, really? I look, will look at him differently now, that he has freedom. Yeah. <laughs> um, this past week, my family had the opportunity to join the Helping Hands Sunday School class uh, at Yoder's uh, in New Holland for lunch. And we went partly because we knew that one of the missionary families that this church supports was going to be there. Um, Matt and Judy Benjamin and their seven-year-old son, uh, Jay, were going to be there talking about what they do. Uh, they're one of the four missionaries that Parkerford supports, and there's a, uh, like a, what is it called? 
there's like a bulletin board behind glass um, right at the entryway if you ever want to read like their newsletters. Uh, but they're with Wycliffe Bible Translators and they're in Texas. And um, what they do, they were sharing with us, is that they work on translating uh, the New Testament first. The Old Testament comes later sometimes, but with the New Testament into the language of a people where the Bible has not been before. Um, and they, they have amazing stories of, of what this is like for a land that never had the Holy Scripture. Some of these places are languages that have been unwritten previously. There's no written language at all. So translators have to go in and learn the culture and get to know the people and all the nuances and then develop some kind of written language that these people are going to be able to somehow understand based on the language that they know. Um, when they go in and take the written word, they have a listening device as well. So they can hear the language, their own language, hear scripture, and then they have it in front of them. So they have the opportunity to actually listen and read and learn to read. Um, it's, it was exciting. So they brought a video with them um, that they shared with us. Um, and before that, I wanted to say that they also uh, told us that the, in the communist countries, in order to, for anybody to read any book that comes in, the government officials have to read through whatever it is first and then give their stamp of approval. And in the process of some of the officials reading through the translations that they've brought into these countries, um, they've met Jesus and and understood who he was in the process of having to go through and make sure there's no political propaganda in that. And that's, that's exciting to me. Um, but they showed a video of uh, people, and I don't know where it was, and the word of God was coming to that land in, for the first time in their language. And these people were excited. They, it was a ceremony. They were celebrating. There was banners and um, colorful streamers and singing and dancing, and they were so excited, and people were crying. And, um, and one of the leaders, you could tell he was the leader, he stood up and he held the word, word up and said, the word of God has come to our land. And most of us that were there were just completely blown away by that. And afterwards, we were talking about how, you know, we have Bibles collecting dust. All of us have a couple extra Bibles sitting around. We want to try a different translation, right? Um, and, and here they are excited about, for the first time they read the Word of God, and they have it in their hands. And I had made the comment that, um, you know, sometimes we get a little tired when Tim wants us to stand up for the whole chapter. I mean, you know that some of you feel that way too, I'm sure. Your legs are getting a little tired, and you're like, is he done yet, you know? Um, and I, I have a new appreciation, definitely. Um, and I just wanted to read Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's alive and active and powerful, and we should be privileged to, to read it. And can we stand now with joy? <laughs> Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful man 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that the words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also pre predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. So the gospel. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit has put to death the law of sin and death. We are not chained any longer. We've been freed. We've been set free. And apparently, according to Paul, he's saying that we've been freed so much that internally we can be people who can sustain massive amounts of persecution. We are people who can take direct shots at our identity. People who can get struck on one cheek and turn and give the other cheek. And the ability to sustain relationships is phenomenal if we actually hold on to the truth of the gospel. If we actually can hold on. Here's the deal. The enemy has one primary objective. To deceive us and to lie to us. To get us to focus on ourselves. That's his big job. The enemy wants over and over again to lie to us about what Christ has done for us. And instead of looking at Jesus, instead of caring about others, just to focus on ourselves. This is what causes the breach in the relationships, right? When we focus on ourselves, it's, it's what breaks the relationship. So his whole objective is to demolish love, not by hatred, but by selfishness. That's his objective. When he gets us selfish, we no longer love. So he does two things. The two primary ways that he deceives us. And this passage directly opposes them. Two primary ways that he deceives us. First of all, he wants us to feel good about the wrong things. Secondly, is he wants us to feel bad about the wrong things. He wants us to feel inappropriately good about ourselves, arrogance. And he wants us to feel inappropriately bad about ourselves, shame. And if he can get us with arrogance, or if he can get us with shame, then we are locked up focusing on ourselves, and we end up not loving others. Let me explain how this works. Okay, so over here, say today this sermon ends up being an okay sermon. Who knows what will happen. But say it ends up being an okay sermon. At the end of the sermon, I might be like, you know what, I did a good job this week. (laughs) And I I feel pretty good about myself. And in the back of my spirit, Satan's just like, hey, guess what, buddy? You were awesome today. You ruled man, you are so good at this. And if he does that, then I take a step up right here. All right. Yeah, I did pretty good. And see, as much as he accuses, his nickname is the accuser of the saints, but as much as he accuses, that much more, he flatters. He loves to flatter. 
because the accusation doesn't work until the flattery is deep in place. See, first, you've got to get pride. Pride comes before the fall. And so you've got to actually have something to stand on that he can pull out from under you. So he puffs you up and he pats you on the back with anything and everything. He gets us to feel good about the wrong things. There's the obvious things, okay? If I'm, you know, in substance abuse and, I'm, you know, it feels really good when I get drunk or when I'm sexually immoral or whatever, like, okay, yeah, that's feeling good about the wrong stuff and we know that and he'll get us that way by, you know, having us feel good about the wrong stuff. But the much more subtle ways that he loves to go after us is flattery by like, you know what, you're being a good Christian. You know what, you've done some good things today. You've really, you did a great job helping that person out. You took one for the team. You're a slugger. Way to go, you know? And he flatters us. You did a great job at work today. You know, like, you're doing all right, man. Check out that paycheck. It's not bad. You know, compared to everyone else, it was really good, whatever you did. And he constantly trying to get us to get an identity in ourselves, to feel good about ourselves, to stand on some sort of platform that's about our own two feet says, this is who I am. And he tries to get us to get an identity anywhere other than Christ. That's what he tries to do. So what is it that makes me feel good about myself? Maybe I'm good at my job. Maybe I got skills. Maybe, maybe it's that I'm the really nice person or that religiously I've done, whatever it is. He wants us to stand on that. And he wants to tell us all the time that that's what makes us worthwhile. And when he gets us standing on that, he's got us right where he wants us. Because say this message does go half decent, okay, and I start to feel like that, then over here, guess what happens in a couple weeks when I preach one that doesn't go too well? Crash and burn, man. Now all of a sudden I don't feel any good about myself. And now I'm like, ah, man, I blew it. It's no good. And I might have been over here hitting the game-winning shot, but the next game when I missed the buzzer beater, now I'm the villain. I went from being the hero to the villain overnight. And it... You know, and that's what kills relationships because over here, when everything's going the way I want and it's working out, I feel great. But over here, when someone says something that illegitimizes me or cuts me or I feel like I'm insecure, you're messing with my sense of security or my sense of justice and, and I'm taking care of myself. Remember, I'm standing on my own platform and I've got to defend myself. And if you're doing something here that makes me afraid or makes me question my manhood or makes me question my own legitimacy or identity... I'm in trouble because now I can't just walk away from that. I have to actually stand up to you. And I have to say, I've got to protect my ground. I've got to find a way to get over this stuff that he's flattering me about. If I'm dependent on it, I am not free. What if I'm in the middle of a city with the headphones on and I feel the need to worship? Can I start screaming out in the city, worship? No, I can't because I've learned to identify myself at least to some degree by what you all think of me. And if I care, then I'm not free. Right? Isn't that how it works? If I care on that level, if, if part of my identity is how you see me, then I'm no longer free. However, if what you think of me, if my own achievements, if my own sense of security, if that's irrelevant and I depend on Jesus and I depend on Him, you can't take it from me. You cannot take it from me. While I am still a sinner, Christ dies for me. His character doesn't change. No matter what I do, I can't change the fact that He loves me. 
I can't do it. I can't change the fact that he died on a cross and that he's forgiven me. I cannot change it. I can't. I can mess up as much as I want. I can run away, but he would never leave. Right? I, I cannot change it. It's a done deal. He died on a cross. He is love. There's nothing I can do about it. And yet somehow our lives still end up like a rat race where we're trying to define ourselves by this or by that or protect ourselves or establish ourselves when what needed to be done is already done. When what we need is love, it's already there and we can't change it. What needs to change is what we believe about ourselves. That's what needs to change. Nothing else needs to change. What we believe needs to change. You know how I said that uh, you know, in, in Burma or Afghanistan or in China, they, they don't actually have much less freedom than we. we. They do politically or they do religiously, but internally, you know, the persecuted church, that's where people thrive. In the persecuted church, when the pressure comes in, when the, when the squeeze is there, people hold on to their belief and they begin to believe what the scriptures say in ways that the rest of us have a hard time holding on to it. But when the pressure is there, we begin to believe the truth. And the truth is that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I would like to say that I believe that all the time. Really, I wish I did. You know, I believe it intellectually all the time. But I wish that I owned it all the time. But when someone says something that takes a shot at me, it still really hurts. And frankly, it shouldn't. There's no condemnation. Do I believe God or do I believe them? If they say I'm a chump... Do I believe them? Well, it still hurts, so in a way, yeah. You know? But he says there's no condemnation. It's a done deal. Um, in his eyes, it's all done. What happens over here so often is that people believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus, but we don't believe in the depth of our depravity. Let me explain what I mean. Oftentimes I can say, I know I'm a sinner. I do these few things that I just, I wish I wouldn't do. Yesterday, Jen and I got into an argument. We very rarely get into arguments. And I blew it yesterday, you know? I got, like, embarrassed in a situation that I shouldn't have got embarrassed in. And I just blew it, so I got mad because I was embarrassed in the situation. And it was like, it was a dumb thing, you know? It was just dumb. That's all it was. And... At the end of it, I could be like, you know what? Obviously now, I know I'm a sinner. Like, that was all about me, you know? But the truth is, is I'm not more of a sinner then than I always am. It's just it was something a little bit out of the norm, and I felt it. The truth is, is we are so depraved. I mean, we are, we are not just people who are relatively good who sin every now and then. No, what we are is sinners, what that means is, is that for us, the orientation of how we think and how we feel is wrong. We're consumed with ourself more than anything else. The scriptures tell us that the heart, it's desperately wicked and it's deceitful above all else. We're told that the human mind has been given over to depravity to fulfill all the lusts that it wants. God begins to redeem it if we turn our hearts to Him, but we desperately need Him. And any time I try to stand on my own two feet, any time I think I'm a pretty decent guy who just does a few things wrong that I need the sacrifice of the cross for, then I'm standing on the wrong thing. The truth is, is that I don't often believe in the depth 
of my depravity. How much I need God. Just how rough it is. But when I come to terms with the fact, oh, what a wretched man I am, is what chapter 7 says. Who can save me from this body of sin? When I get to a place where I'm like, I got nothing. You know, Jesus, I got nothing. I'm, I'm just this guy here. You know, I, really, there's nothing left of me. I'm a shell of a man. I say that I could do this, but at the end of the day, I can't really do it. I wish that I could be this, but at the end of the day, I can't, I can't really be that. I always fail. I am a failure. And at that moment, the cross is there. And he says that we die with him. And we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And in that moment, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So then the next time when I'm over here and Satan says to me, you know what, you messed that one up, Tim. You just blew it. You just had that argument with your wife, and you know, that was selfish. You're not much of a... You call yourself a Christian, and then let alone a pastor, you know? And you know what needs to be said in those moments? You know what, Satan? You're right. You're right. I'm not much of a Christian. And I am not much of a pastor. And I don't need to be for God to love me. What I need to be in order for God to love me is a sinner. That's what I need to be. I need to be a sinner. I need to realize I'm a sinner. And I'm really good at that. You know, I'm great at being a sinner. And he says that while I'm still a sinner, he dies for me. And as long as my mind understands the fact that I am depraved, then I can depend on Christ and I can realize I'm loved. But it is if I'm in Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we can say, you know what? It's cool, man. God loves me. Everything's great. So I'm going to go and do what I want to do and have a good time. And he loves me and there's no condemnation. And we begin to feel again like, we live in our own world and live how we want to and stand on our own two feet, but Jesus has us covered. That's a lie too, because we're not actually in Christ. I was telling the story at first service. Ruth gave me a little bit of uh, grief for telling the story, but I've got to tell it again. There's, there's a hamster who um, showed up at our door last week. Hamster, is it? Hamster. I'm going to go with Ruth's opinion on this one. She's the animal person. Yeah, it was a hamster. Okay, so someone showed up at our church before last week, and they dropped a hamster off in a box in front with a note. It was, like, it was amazing. It was like, we don't know what to do with this hamster. We're leaving for vacation. Can you guys find a home for it? And they put it on the step of the church. I'm like, that's hilarious. So it wasn't a baby. It was a hamster, you know? Uh, and so anyway, the... Uh, I, I, I'm not a betting man. If I was, I would have definitely... I, I told someone, I was like, this thing's going to end up at the Jackson's house. I guarantee it. And it did. If I had been a betting man, I'd have made lots of money. Because um, Ruth has a huge heart for animals. And so anytime there's a, 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 a pitiful little animal, she's going to take it in. And the thing... They took it in, and they take it back to their house, and they were waiting for... A friend was supposed to bring a cage to them. Well, that night they didn't have the cage, so they had this box, you know? It was a thick box. They put the box, cut a few little holes in it, and put the lid on it. Well, before they went to bed, it was kind of bumping up a little bit, so they put something on top of the lid. They're like, we don't want it to get out. There's cats in the house. So, kittens. Okay, kittens, whatever. And uh, so they put the thing on the, Well, Steve comes down in the morning, and guess what? Big hole in the side of that box. 
dead hamster on the floor. See, the truth is, is that hamster thought he found freedom. (laughs) He did not find freedom. Jesus has rules and laws in place for us because he wants us to live freely and thrive. And we are like, no, we got this, Jesus. I got it. Let me out of the box. I know what's best for me. And we get out of the box and bam, life hits us. And we realize he saw the whole perspective and he knew what freedom was. And if I would stay dependent on him, I would be free in no matter what my circumstances are. But instead, I decide to change my circumstances and believe that freedom is found in the circumstances instead of in Jesus. And because of that, I decided to be Lord of my own life. I am no longer in Christ in that moment. And when I'm no longer in Christ... There is, therefore, condemnation. There will be condemnation when I'm not in Christ. What I mean by that is that the enemy has a heyday with me. Man, he will pick me to shreds. Because when I stand out, I, when, when I stand get away from Jesus, when I don't submit myself to him, I am opening myself up to a world of hurt. But when I get within the confounds of Jesus, and I begin to identify myself with what he's done on the cross, and I just trust in him, and I realize, hey man, I'm not going to make the call the shots in my life. I'm going to let him call the shots. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to feel good about myself because I did this right. I'm feeling good about myself for one reason, because he died on the cross for me because he loves me. You know? And when I'm in that spot, there's no condemnation. He can't pull the rug out from under me. There's no condemnation. And when there isn't any condemnation, I can sustain the relationship. And Jews and Gentiles can get along. Parents and kids can get along. So long as we are in Christ. When we are in Christ, we take away the ability for condemnation. It's a cool thought, isn't it? It's awesome to think about how much he frees us. Instead of finding my own way to be happy, if I trust him, Instead of finding my own way to identify myself, identify myself as a child of His. He loves me. He takes care of me. That's all I need to know. I don't need to be something special. I am something special. And over here, He just tells me, I have clothed you with robes of righteousness. All the way back in the garden, you know what happened, right? Everybody was honky-dory, loving one another. And then they ate that apple because they stepped out of the box. They chewed through the box and found out that it wasn't good on the other side. And when they got there, what's the first thing they noticed? I don't have any clothes on. They never saw themselves before that. They were seeing each other. They were seeing God. They were seeing each other. They were focused all out here. And then all of a sudden, shame. Boom, the eyes go inward. They feel empty. And the story goes on of humanity from there. Relationships get tough because we're looking at ourselves instead of each other. But when he says, I love you, I've clothed you with robes of righteousness. Stop trying to impress yourself or prove yourself. Stop trying to be something. I got you. Believe me when I say that in the eyes of God, you are righteous. I'm a desperate sinner who's dead in the grave but I am also a righteous child of God. Not because of my own merit. There's nothing I can do to lose it. And in the days when he accuses me of being a terrible child, I can say, I am. But guess what? I am also 
a living son of God. And there's nothing you can do to change it because while I'm still a sinner, he dies for me. There's nothing I can do to change his character. There's nothing I can do to change his cross. So there's nothing I can do to change his love. There's nothing I can do to change the fact that I'm a righteous son of God. And when you fill me up that way, next time when I'm in a situation where the person says something that embarrasses me in public, all right, that might embarrass me. But truth is, is who cares? Because God thinks I'm awesome. He really does. He thinks I'm amazing. I have no idea why. He must be crazy, you know? But he really does. Because now I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. How will I identify identify myself? By the things I've done that are wonderful? By something special, some special talent of me? If so, I'm doomed. Condemnation's coming. If not, if I trust in Jesus, it's rock solid. And our relationships can sustain a whole lot of bumps. And we can figure out how to care about the other person. Because we don't need them to care about us. We got God caring about us. My job is just to care about you. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for the freedom that you give to us. And uh, we're just asking that you would give us the faith to believe. I know that we all believe on one level, God, but there's a level of belief that we need that goes further, that goes beyond. We need the kind of faith and the kind of belief that in a moment when we feel the guilt or we feel the shame or we feel the oppression or we feel the pride or we feel the arrogance, when all of that is just fades into the background. And no matter what anyone says or sees or looks at or thinks, no matter what they do, that I don't feel threatened. I'm not a slave again to fear. Instead, your spirit testifies to my spirit that I am a child of the living God. Give us the faith to own it, to believe it, to live in it. In Jesus' name, amen.